Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a cash app profile for the show. And one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian. And all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And for my supporters, I recently introduced an exclusive tier for y'all, and it's called Mr. Jeffersonian's Ward Republic. Perks of being a supporting listener currently include one video call with me and the other Ward Republic members each month, and up to 40 minutes each call. It's a great atmosphere, and we'd love to have you there. All you need to do to become a member of the Ward Republic is start contributing today at the $4.99 per month level through the Anchor link, or if you'd rather go through Cash App, then you can round it up to $5 per month. Um, essentially, as long as it comes out to $60 per year, you're, you're going to be covered. And speaking of groups, if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. And just for basic group level access, I'm always going to keep that free. So if you can't afford to contribute, that's perfectly fine. You can still come into the group, see what we're discussing over there. We'd love to have you. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you that group invite. And if you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, today we continue our study of the policies and rhetoric of Huey P. Long, Huey Pierce Long. On our last episode on the topic, I did a deconstruction of his Every Man a King speech and detailed why it was problematic from a liberty perspective. What we're going to do today is break down the specifics of his Share the Wealth program or Share Our Wealth program, and we're going to compare that to what we actually got out of the New Deal with the policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So what were the program planks of Huey P. Long's Share Our Wealth? Well, plank number one was cap personal fortunes at $5 million each. Y'all may recall from our previous episode on this, um, he initially said $50 million. I guess his mathematicians told him, hey, that's a little too high. We got we to gotta crank that down. The second plank was he wanted to limit annual incomes to $1 million each. Uh, third plank was limit inheritances to $5 million each. Fourth plank was he wanted to guarantee every family an annual income of $2,000 a year or one-third the national average. Next plank is he wanted free college education and vocational training. Next, he wanted old age pensions for all persons over 60 who didn't make at least $1,000 a year or have $10,000 worth of property. Next, he wanted veterans benefits and health care. Next, he wanted 30-hour work weeks to solve unemployment. Next, he wanted four weeks paid vacation for every worker. And finally, he wanted some system of price-fixing of commodities through the regulation of production. So, again, we're going to compare and contrast this, what Huey wanted versus what FDR gave us. Uh, so we're, that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Now, just one other thing I, I want to make here, or another point I want to make. Huey was uh, very 
very good at manipulating crowds. And he actually, in my opinion, started to develop the mass communication technique with radio even before FDR. So to help garner support for his platform, so for the uh, Share Our Wealth program, Huey P. Long leveraged the tactic of mass communication via the radio. And he also enlisted the support of local ministers and community leaders to start his Share the Wealth Society this was a society that was intended to reach the grassroots level and at its apex, it had roughly 27,000 chapters and enjoyed the membership of more than 7.5 million people. These clubs would meet regularly and stump for Long's ideas. Long was also enlightened on racial issues for his time. A membership to this society was open to all races and, and there were no dues that you had to pay to become a part of it. And the office of Huey P. Long was receiving more than 60,000 letters per week during this period. And one constituent letter read as follows, quote, If we could only succeed in having the government hold fortunes down to a few million dollars to any one man, then there would be something on which to run the country and for the people. When I proposed such a thing here, it looked like it would set the woods on fire against me, end quote. And, uh, huh. It's almost like people don't take too kindly to the government confiscating their hard-earned property. Who would have thought? All right, so now let's dig into this plank by plank and see what Huey wanted versus the reality we got from FDR. So first and foremost, we're going to do the first two planks. So again, uh, plank number one, cap personal fortunes at $5 million each. The FDR administration did not go quite this far. They, they didn't actually have a limit on wealth. The closest thing they introduced that I could find was the 1935 wealth tax. This was an income tax with a top nominal rate of 75% on incomes exceeding $1 million per year. And recall that Huey literally wanted a 100% tax on anything over his arbitrary limit with the proceeds to be held in a government trust to use for benefit of the people. And Long also wanted this strategy to apply to annual income, and he had set his annual income limit at $1 million. So no official hard cap on wealth, but a very, very high uh, top nominal tax rate was introduced by FDR on that. The third plank uh, was to limit inheritances to $5 million each. And much to Huey's chagrin, there was not a firm limit on the amount that people could inherit under the New Deal legislation. But the federal estate tax was dramatically increased throughout most of the 1930s and the early 1940s. And the breakdown that I could find was as follows. So from 1926 to 1931, estates in excess of 100000 were subject to a 20% tax. In 1932 and 33, the exclusion amount was only $50,000, and the tax rate was increased to 45%. For 1934, uh, we still had a $50,000 exclusion, but the tax rate was bumped up to 60%. From 1935 to 1940, we had a $40,000 exclusion and the tax rate increased to 70%. And then from 1941 to 1976, we had a $60,000 exclusion and a top tax rate for the estates of 77%. Guys, I, I can't even imagine that. Like, it, Just think, if you had an estate that was worth a million dollars after the exclusion that would literally mean that the government would take 77%. That would be $770,000. So we had an estate tax that high, death tax that high for 35 years. And thank you, FDR, for saddling us with that. 
And just for the record, the two taxes that I find to be just absolutely indefensible and the most immoral are the property tax and the estate tax. The property tax, because the government literally never helps you pay your mortgage at, at all, period. And if you're not using public school systems, you're paying for something that you're never going to use. So if you're a homeschooler, you're being forced to pay for something you'll never get benefit out of. Uh, if you're somebody who doesn't want kids or couldn't have kids or your kids have already flown the coop, same thing. You're, you're being forced to pay for something you will quite literally never use. So the property tax is just god awful. Uh, and then I, I hate the estate tax because it, it's literally a tax to die. And assumedly, the individual would have paid their taxes all throughout their lives. So it, in that sense, it's actually also a double tax. And you're taxing their beneficiaries for the success that they enjoyed throughout life. I, it just horribly immoral, horribly immoral taxes. And then the fourth and fifth planks, uh, we had guaranteed minimum annual income of $2,000 or one-third the national average for every family. And then fifth plank was free college or vocational training. So officially, the New Deal did not offer any sort of guaranteed minimum income just for somebody existing. There was also no formal free college plan put in place. The closest Huey came to having hit this dream recognized would have been through the make-work agencies that came out of the New Deal plan. And these included programs like the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. And this agency primarily focused on employing men who were not formally educated and putting them to work on public works projects, such as public buildings and roads. And some of the more famous products of this agency include the Blue Ridge Parkway. That is a very beautiful drive if you've never been on it. Uh, it's incredibly scenic, very scenic, but... Kind of a waste of money because it was built for the view. And then the Hoover Dam. Uh, everybody's probably familiar with the Hoover Dam. And the San Antonio River Walk. And if you ever go to Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, there's actually a really interesting dinosaur park on the outskirts of town that was also built by the WPA. So this thing is like teeny tiny. And the dinosaurs, to put it nicely, are very outdated. You know, it's, it's definitely like that 1930s, big tall lizard with a tail on the ground type of dinosaur. But it is really interesting to go and look at that. Uh, these things are, you know, approaching 90 years old now and they're still standing uh, and, it, and it's got its own little building there. It's got like a little gift shop and stuff. So if you're ever in Rapid City, South Dakota, it, it is a neat little thing to go and see it. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to go there. So just, just something to keep in mind if you ever find yourself in Rapid City. And then another agency that came out of this was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. And the CCC took in male volunteers aged 18 to 25 and set them, or excuse me, sent them all around the country building things such as reservoirs, recreational areas, and national forests and parks. Uh, they would also sometimes be used to help fight wildfires. They would also perform road maintenance in the parks and forests. And the workers were kept in semi-military style camps with similar leadership hierarchies within the encampments and they were given three meals a day medical care and other necessities and were paid a monthly wage of a whopping thirty dollars and twenty five dollars had to be sent home to their families each month they they only got five dollars to keep for themselves to live on so it's pretty interesting uh, there was a parallel with with this program in germany in the 1920s and 30s i'll, I'll let y'all determine which one you think it was but it was kind of interesting to see the full mobilization like this. And I mean, we, we never really got away from it. Once the government got in, the general government, that is, got into 
this level of economic planning and having their fingers just in everything, they, they never took it back out. And Brian McClanahan has actually made that point as well. The United States never left a wartime economy after World War II ended. It, it just never happened because they thought what they saw was good and said, why don't we just keep doing this in some form or fashion? Now, both of these agencies, so the WPA and the CCC, offered informal, informal vocational training on the job, as well as some formalized schooling, as many of the young men in the CCC earned their high school diplomas while in the Corps. So there was uh, something there, not exactly what Huey wanted, but there was something there that you could basically work for your education. It wasn't free like uh, Huey P. Long had wanted. Now, the sixth plank was for veterans benefits, and I was kind of surprised when I was doing my research on this. So surprisingly, in the 1933 Economy Act, that was signed into law by FDR, and it cut the veterans benefits by more than $400 million annually. Veterans responded in kind by immediately denouncing FDR and questioning his sincerity to help the forgotten man. And most of this outrage uh, on behalf of the veterans was manifested via the VFW and American Legion Societies. And Roosevelt would continue his on-again, off-again policies with the veteran bloc until 1944 when he signed the Service Member Readjustment Act into law. And this law actually became the basis for what we today call the GI Bill. So overall, I'd say Huey's wishes were left mostly unfulfilled in this area, but his dreams would be carried out in earnest after the Vietnam War and the rise, like the real rise of the VA. So in the moment, I would say this was probably a defeat based on what his vision would have been. But again, given enough time, it, it's been pretty much fully recognized. And then the seventh and eighth planks, seven was the 30-hour work week and eight was the four weeks paid vacation. And for those of you who don't know, and, and when he was a Louisiana politician, Huey P. Long was known as the Kingfish and the kingfish was thwarted again with these desires, so he didn't get a 30-hour work week or the four weeks paid vacation. So under FDR, one of the most impactful pieces of labor legislation was the Fair Labor Standards Act, or the FLSA, and this bill set a federal minimum wage of 25 cents per hour and established a maximum work week of 44 hours. Other significant labor legislation included the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which primarily guaranteed the right of private employees to form unions and collectively bargain for higher wages and better working conditions, allegedly. This bill is sometimes known as the Wagner Act. For its sponsor was New York Senator Robert F. Wagner, and this bill provided for the creation of the National Labor Relations Board, which was the body responsible for ensuring compliance with the act. And the NLRB is actually still in existence today, 86 years later. And then for the ninth and final plank, we have price fixing through production regulation. So Huey wasn't satisfied with this. We touched on this very briefly in, in our previous episode about Huey. And Huey was not satisfied with the level of price fixing, but I, I think FDR got as close to price fixing as can realistically be expected, and it, it was absolutely disastrous. So we had the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, or the AAA, and that act propped up farmers because it established price floors for their crops by providing massive subsidies for them to let their, some of their fields lay empty. Not, not all of them, but it dramatically curtailed production of food. Now, at this point in American history, roughly 75% of the population was not farmers or were not farmers. And because of this legislation, they were forced to pay more for their food. And, uh, you know, again, you had people who were literally starving 
And what does FDR say? Well, we got to prop up prices. Can't got to set a floor. Can't let them go beneath this. So horrible legislation there. And then we had the Robinson-Patman Act, and this was an amendment to the Clayton Antitrust Act, and it was passed in 1936. And its intent was to protect small grocery stores from price competition from larger chain stores. And essentially what it did was make it illegal for the larger retailers to pass their bulk discounts on to consumers in the form of lower prices. So you had some mom-and-pop grocery stores who were happy with this. Obviously, the larger companies probably were not uh, given enough time. Who knows? Maybe they, they came around and saw that as a way to squeeze the competition. But in the moment, again, he's doing everything he can. He being FDR and the Congress that he was serving with, they were doing everything they could to make sure that we had somewhat or excuse me, had a somewhat stable price floor. And that is just not what you want to do in a time like this where people can't make hardly any more money. You got soaring unemployment. You don't want to set an artificially high price floor. You want to let prices be flexible and let them kind of move with the market. That way people with whatever money they have, they can at least stretch it a little bit further. But that that was not the thought process here. And then we also had the, the Civil Aeronautics Act. And this was signed into law on June 23rd, 1938. And this act established the Civil Aeronautics Authority, later the Civil Aeronautics Board. And this was a government-backed cartel that protected existing airlines from new competition. And without a cab certificate of public convenience and necessity, an airline couldn't even fly on an interstate route. Can you believe that? Like the government was saying, nope, you can't fly from one state to the other unless you get essentially a certificate of need from us. And that sounds an awful lot like the medical certificates of need that we've, uh, you know, learned so much about throughout the past 18 months. Now, for the next 40 years, the cab did not issue a license for a single new interstate airline. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? From 1938 to 1978, when the airlines were deregulated, there was not a single new interstate service provider that entered into the fray. That is insane. That that level of protection, I mean, I, I genuinely, I cannot fathom that you wouldn't see some sort of new competitor in an industry for 40 years. That That is insane. And this board eventually outlined airline discounting as well, so the effect was legalized price collusion. And so... Initially, what some smaller airlines were doing to get around this, they, they would do uh, what they called non-scheduled flights. And when they would do this, it was basically sort of like space A availability. So what they would do is go on these small circuit flights and then they could charge lower prices. Well, the big boys in the game said, oh, no, no, we, we can't have that. They're undercutting us, government. They, we are losing to the competition and the government stepped in and said, okay, well, you know what? Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and uh, mandate basically minimum pricing across the board. That's it. No more unscheduled flights or non-scheduled flights. And so, again, the, the real world effect there was legalized price collusion. Absolutely terrible. Here we're going to go ahead and move into the wrap-up phase. So, in closing, I think the primary difference in Huey P. Long and FDR can be summed up as populism versus managerialism. Long was a radical who wanted to get as much into the hands of the masses as possible. FDR, on the other hand, was a corporatist who thought that government intermingling with corporations could solve the problems of the general public. Both approaches were awful, and I know the last time we talked about this, I said previously that Long was one bullet that America dodged in the Depression era. 
But given the long-term outcomes of FDR's economic policies, now I'm honestly not so sure. Uh, not to say that Long would have been good by any stretch. Again, I, I think both of these approaches were just dreadful. But the fact is, we're still living with FDR's economics, and I'm not a big fan of it. So Long's presidency that never was will forever be one of the most interesting what-ifs in American history. Thank you all again for tuning in. And guys, please remember, if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private MeWe group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.